For sports lovers, 2020 has been a difficult year. Abbreviated and canceled seasons have robbed many of us of a favorite diversion. Rewatching old games may fill the time, but there is nothing like seeing a competition live and in person. I, for one, can't wait until the day I can again attend a Dodger game here in Los Angeles. Now, Andrew Bernstein has always enjoyed the best seat in the house as a sports photographer. Not only has he photographed practically every sport event that there is, including the Olympics, he has served as team photographer for the LA Lakers, LA Kings, LA Clippers, and LA Dodgers. In addition, he's also held the position of director of photography for both Staples Center and Microsoft Theater LA. He now has his own podcast, Legends of Sport. In his lengthy career, he's developed many friendships, not least of which was with Kobe Bryant, with whom he collaborated on the book, The Mamba Mentality, How I Play. Andy's career is special, not because of the many iconic images he's made, but because he's demonstrated that he is the kind of man who puts in the extra effort and time to be a great photographer, a good father, and a good man. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, first off, welcome. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Happy to be anywhere. It's always <laughs> nice to talk to a legend. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's code word for old, there, my friend. I know. <laughs> we, we can talk a lot about your, your career as a sports photographer, and that's what we're going to spend a lot of time doing. But I always, when I talk to sports photographers or anyone who's been like covering the game for a long time, I always like hearing the story of the first live event sport mm. event that they ever went to that was like significant for them and what would that be for you the first one i shot like no the, not the one you shot but oh. that you went, went to maybe as a kid well that's a great question um i would have to say i grew up a mets fan and i also was a rangers fan growing up i remember distinctly going to a mets game with my dad i probably was maybe seven or eight and we were sitting behind home plate at chase stadium like sort of halfway up, maybe third deck or something. And uh, a foul ball came our way, you know, straight back. My dad like shoved me out of the way and caught it with one oh, hand. Oh, wow, really? Had a tremendous amount of spin going, you know. I'll, I'll never forget that. I'm glad you reminded me of that. That was uh, 50-something years ago. <laughs> that's amazing. That's a, yeah. that's a great memory to have of the first game. Yeah. Well, it's better than getting hit in the head with a puck, you know. But it that's was <laughs> – no, it was it was a great memory. I had that ball forever. I don't know what happened to it in various moves over the years. On the hockey side, I remember going to see the Rangers play. And back in the day, we used to um, go to the old Madison Square Garden. This is the garden that was up on uh, 10th Avenue, I believe, before they built the new garden in 1971. And the old garden had these pillars that, you know, the new garden had the suspended ceiling, which made it so revolutionary. The old garden was like an old auditorium and it had these pillars that came down and they sold seats literally behind the pillars that were called obstructed view seats. 
and it had it stamped on the ticket obstructed view and you literally are sitting behind the pillar and that's where me the kid would always sit i'd have to sit in the stoop behind the pillar every single time because my dad would get the tickets for like 50 cents you know so that's what one of my earliest memories ago at a ranger games i went to uh, i think i can't remember which was first whether it was a rams game at the old coliseum that was my first or whether it was a dodger game yeah but the experience that I, I remember was just the noise of so many people yeah and just it's unlike any other feeling I've ever had where I have just like, you know, thousands of thousands of people around you at the same time. And there's something that I think is, you know, very alluring about that, whether you are a sports fan, a sports player, or in your case of a photographer. Yeah. Talk to me about the intoxication of just that feeling at that sound yeah. uh, and what it does for you, especially when you're out there virtually in the center of it. You know, it's so funny you're bringing this up because the last month or so, this is going to sound really weird, but I've had this crazy ringing in my ear, my, my ear, <laughs> equally, right? But yeah. I've never experienced. So I go to my doctor, I get a hearing test, the whole thing that they do. And it comes back, I have, you know, like 20% hearing loss at the high frequency, not unusual for my age. The audiologist says to me, he says, what, what kind of, let me just ask you, what kind of work do you do? And I said, well, you know, I'm a sports photographer. And Are you in noisy environments, she says. I said, yeah. She says, when's the last time you were in one? I said, four months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, do you ever experience this when you're in a loud arena or a stadium? I said, not Consciously, she said, well, maybe you're having withdrawal. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> maybe, maybe your brain is consciously like hearing it because it was so used to hearing it for 40 years. Isn't that weird? That's so bizarre. It is intoxicating, and it is something that I absolutely gravitate towards and feed off of, and the energy of the fans and just the buzz in the arena. And I could mm -hmm. cite a million examples for you. I mean, most notably, the loudest arena stadium I'd ever been in in my life was uh, Dodger Stadium when Kirk Gibson hit the home run in 88 oh. and literally felt like the stadium was going to crack in half because it was just it was just thunderous and it went on for probably went on for I don't know seven or eight minutes straight and the upper decks were just shaking. It was like, you know, earthquake, <laughs> basically. And then any, every NBA finals, I remember Kobe's last game in uh, 19, I'm sorry, in 2016. You know, it, it, it is an amazing experience. And now, you know, I'm up against going to shoot the NBA in the bubble situation and there being no fans there. <laughs> that yeah. whole element, that whole um you know, part of the game, which the players feed off of, of course, the energy is going to be gone. So I'm very curious to see how that all pans out. When did you know that you wanted to be not just a photographer, but a sports photographer? Well, I took up photography at 14. My dad bought me a, an old Canon TL film camera. And that was right before the summer of my 14th, uh, 14th year. And we went down and, and, and hit all the major national parks out west. For a city kid, that was unbelievable. But I really took to photography. And I actually have a funny story to tell you if you, if you have a minute. Oh, yeah. So, so back in the day, you know, we used to shoot film, obviously. Kodachrome was kind of the, the film you would get. And it would come with a mailer. I don't know if you're old enough. Oh, to yeah. Yeah, I but do. You would, buy, you would buy Kodachrome film and it would come literally with a mailer, prepaid mailer, that wherever you were in the country, you could literally put it into a 
mailbox anywhere, and it would go to Rochester, and then a week or two later, you would have this box, this yellow box, come back to your house, right, with, with your slides in it. So my dad and I bought a whole bunch of mailers. He had given me this camera. I really didn't have a chance to learn it at all. And my dad was a, was a doctor, and he, but he considered himself, among other things, to be an amateur photographer. So he was going to teach me, the kid, how to do photography on this trip. We're going through all the national parks, and we're taking pictures, and he's taking pictures of his. He had an FTB Canon camera, I had a TL. And we're putting the film in each other's mailers, you know, and sending it off to Rochester. And it's going great, and I'm, you know, having a lot of fun learning how to use the camera, and my dad's, you know, showing me. We get back home, and there's probably 60 of these little yellow boxes waiting there. My mom had piled up on the dining room table. And they don't have either of our names. It just says Bernstein on it. So we're going through these envelopes and these boxes and I'm looking at him and he's looking at his, you know, once he picks up and he goes, Oh, these pictures are unbelievable. Look at this roll of film I shot. You know, I, I got, I got old faithful and I got the grand Canyon and, and, and look at this one in Mount Rainier. And I said, well, hold on dad. Like, can I, can I see that roll for a second? <laughs> and he shows me the roll and I go through it at about four or five pictures in there's a picture of him. Like at Mount Rainier. <laughs> I said, well, hold on, Pop. That, that's not your role. That's my role. <laughs> it's my role of film. So he, he was like mortified because he wanted, obviously, to have a hand up on me. But, but we laughed about it years later because that was really the epiphany. That was the moment that I knew that I had a little bit of skill and a little bit of talent. And all that sort of coalesced later on. In fact, that same year when a good friend of mine, his name was Andrew Feldman, and he had a dark room in his basement in his house in Brooklyn. And he took me in the dark room and showed me how to develop film and how to make prints. And I'll tell you, man, when I saw that first print come up in the developer in the tray uh, and saw it literally like that magic trick. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you remember it. it like, it's like a magic trick. You have this blank piece of paper, which you put some, you know, a light on and an image on an enlarger. You put it in this solution and like 20 seconds later, and the image comes up that you actually created in your brain that got translated through your camera and is now coming up in this solution. And that, that was, man, that was like the giant light bulb. <laughs> yeah. I knew, I knew that I could literally create something that was tangible and creative and interesting. You know, the sky was the limit at that point. But how do you, do you associate a career in photography with a career in in, in sports? Cause. Well, th that's an easy answer because I was always the shortest kid on my block. So I was uh, always the last okay. one picked for pick up baseball, pick up basketball, pick up football, street hockey. I played all those sports and I was decent at it, but I was like the littlest, you know, scrawniest kid. So I knew I'd never have any career whatsoever in high school and, you know, beyond. Although my dream was to be shortstop for the Mets because Bud Harrelson was my idol. <sighs> That's all of the story. But I, uh, I realized very quickly that I had two passions. I had a passion for sports and I had a passion for photography. And what better way than to merge them and have the best seat in the house, <laughs> quite yeah. frankly, which, you know, I've had for 40 years. So it's been a gift. You went to Art Center, College of Design. Right. That, that school is... It primarily geared for people interested in commercial photography, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. not so much sports. 
And um, I've taught there, so I've seen that the, mm. the great majority of, of, of the students have an interest in photography, uh, not many who are interested in, in doing sports. Right. And one of the things that I often notice, if a, if a student is there is very dedicated to a particular aspect of photography that's not being reflected with what the other students are doing, mm. it can be kind of a challenge mm-hmm. because, you know, not just the, the, the curriculum, but also the other students are looking at mm-hmm. you going, Mm-hmm. What do you think you're doing? Yeah. So t- tell me about the sort of pushback that you might have gotten while you were there before you actually got started in your career. Was Did it prove to be a little more difficult to get through school? Well, you're being incredibly diplomatic because <laughs> I was, I was uh, to say the black sheep of my class would be an understatement. Everyone in my class, I, I went into our center, there were two classes the year when I went in, the spring of 78. And I think it was 38 of us split into two classes. And everyone was interested in either product photography, uh, car photography, uh, of course, studio stuff, anything involving, you know, anything in the studio of fashion, portraiture, whatever. I was the really the only one who was interested in photojournalism. Hadn't really decided 100% on sports at that point when I first went there. I was discouraged from day one. I mean... Every teacher I had the first three terms, except for one teacher, completely dismissed my dream and my ambition. And the first three terms of Art Center, you're basically in the dark room 24 hours a day anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not really focusing on what your true interest is because they expect to develop that over those three terms. And it's an eight term you know, curriculum. So I had one teacher named Bill Robbins, who was my um, advertising teacher, who, who really just saw that, hey, you know what? This guy's got a, a dream, he's got ambition, he's got some Brooklyn moxie, and he encouraged me, along with my, uh, the only photojournalism teacher that, that any of us had at Art Center was a guy named Jim Cacavo. Jim was a Vietnam veteran, uh, war photographer, he worked for the Red Cross uh, during Vietnam War, and he saw that passion in me as well. So both of these gentlemen became mentors throughout my time at Art Center and have stayed mentors of mine, you know, 40 plus years later. I mean, these are good friends of mine I could call at any moment and do and lean on and ask for advice. Jim and I actually uh, went full circle and he actually taught a class with me at a, at a um, youth center in uh, the Rampart District a number of years ago, which was super fun. And then I've been working with Bill as an adjunct um, instructor at Mount St. Mary's University, where he uh, he's now the chairman of the photo department there after leaving Brooks after Brooks closed, but he was with Brooks for a long time. So I get to my eighth term uh, review with the chairman, the great Charlie Potts, who I'm sure you've heard of mm-hmm. and Charlie uh, legend. I mean, he was, he was, a, you know, he was a contemporary of Ansel Adams. I mean, you know, legend. And I remember Charlie just sitting back and, and looking at uh, my portfolio, which you had to, you had a mandatory meeting with the chairman before your eighth term. And he just sat back and said, he says, there's no way you're going to make a living doing this. <laughs> he says, what's your fallback position? <laughs> I said, I got no fallback position. I'm going to make a living. He said, nobody. I remember him like it was yesterday, and I loved him to death. He said, nobody makes a living doing sports photography. And just looked at me right in the eye. I said, really? Have you heard of John Zimmerman? Have you heard of Neil Leifer? Have you heard of Walter Yost? Blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, there are exceptions, son. 
<laughs> I said, yes, I expect to be one of those exceptions, Mr. Potts. Thank you very much. Close up my portfolio. Went, got my degree after my eighth term. But uh, my good friend and teacher mentor, Bill Robinson, introduced me to Lane Stewart from Sports Illustrated. He was an SI staffer. I did my first assignment as an assistant with him. And then he introduced me to the local L.A. photographers, Peter Reed Miller, Richard Max, yeah. and Andy Haight. And that's where I really learned the craft and, and what I needed to do. You know, I was learning the science of photography. I was, I, I was learning a lot about lighting, which was great at Art Center. But to be a sports photographer, I really needed to learn it, like, on the ground, on the job, in the arenas, in the stadiums. And uh, that's what I did. And also, just to round it out the whole thing, is that, as you probably know, we're not given a a lot of business training at Art Center. There's a lot of sort of presumption that, oh, you go to Art Center, you're going to be a successful photographer, but they don't teach you how to run a business. I had one business class, which the great Errol Gerson, thank God he was the instructor and he's still a great friend and mentor and guide and financial advisor and everything else uh, in my business. And I got to work for Bill in his studio and learn how to run a studio, learn how to deal with clients, learn how to Go to the bank, you know, open a checking account, pay vendors, go to the lab, you know, all the things that we do as part of running a business, which Art Center really honestly took for granted or just didn't care to teach us. That was unbelievably valuable to me and uh, very thankful for Bill for bringing me, you know, into the studio to learn that. What did you learn about being a sports photographer that you, you only could have learned by working with these guys, specifically mm-hmm. with respect to how you had to approach what you did. Because mm-hmm. to the amateur, it's all about, you know, getting a great shot. But, to my, you know, to my way of thinking, you really have to think about how these images are going to be used. So mm-hmm. how did that knowledge inform how you worked, how you shot, how you interacted, not only with the athletes, but anyone that, you know, the owners of the, of the mm-hmm. team, the magazines, the newspapers, and so on? Well, first and foremost, I had to learn everything technically that I could possibly learn. And most specifically, I had to learn a, the uh, technique of lighting indoor arenas with strobes. You know, my, my dream was to shoot Laker games, shoot Kings games it, at the forum using strobes. And there were only a handful of people in the country, uh, quite honestly, at the time, who knew how to install these giant strobe units, these big speedotron strobe units and i was trained by a guy named david keith who at the time was the head assistant on the west coast for for sports illustrated and he took me under his wing and showed me how to how to do it you know through my connections with the photographers that i was working for and most of the assignments being at the forum i was able to kind of uh, you know open the little crack of the door and stick my little brooklyn foot in there and uh make some connections and soon discovered that strobe photography was far superior than what they were getting. And I was able to finagle my way in in exchange for credentials. I was able to get, you know, the ability to put my strobes in. And then I was starting to sell pictures as a small stock picture agency and what have you. So by being around these photographers, learning this lighting technique, but also learning how they interact with the athletes and how they interact with the PR directors. And if you're shooting an executive, like you said, and whatever it is on assignment, that was um, the most valuable 
kind of on the job training that I could get because you have to establish a relationship with these people from the moment they meet you. Mm -hmm. And most of them don't want their picture taken. They're not comfortable in front of the camera. They're not trained models. You know, they're not even CEOs who are used to having their picture taken or being in front of the camera for various reasons. And they have the attention span of, you know, of an ant <laughs> most of the time. So you have to be completely prepared. You have to um, not just trust in your equipment, but you have to have this innate knowledge of your equipment that it's second nature. Like I can't be fumbling around with exposure and lenses and, and should I use this umbrella or should I use that soft box or, you know, or that hair? No, it's like, you got to just do it and know it and be prepared and be there early and if something goes wrong, you got to fix it <laughs> and you have to wing it. Sometimes I've had to wing it many, many times. It's, I'm sure you have, and a lot of listeners have, but by winging it, I don't mean just make stuff up. I mean, use your experience of having been in, in these situations many, many times to get what the client wants and then go to the next level and, and get something that maybe you want that, that the client hadn't even thought of. So I take a lot of pride in that. And I take a lot of pride in the fact that I have clients who have been with me my entire career. They're, you know, 35 plus years having the same clients. And there's a reason why they keep coming back. <laughs> um, they're used to the quality that myself and my group now, you know, my photographers who work for me and with me, um, you know, we have a great work ethic. We're pretty seamless in terms of the quality that the client can expect and, and that we can produce. And, you know, I take a lot of pride in that. It's very important to me. You were on the road a lot, right? For a good part of your career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I know that for, oh, for yeah. a while there, you were like a single dad. So, the, you know, the challenge oh, of, yeah. of, you know, being on the road as much as you were and, and raising kids is a difficult one, mm -hmm. even if you're able to be relatively at home. So how, yeah. uh, how did you work that out, man? I, n I have no, no idea. <laughs> about, about my kids turned out okay i don't know god bless them i can't really answer that i uh i became a single dad um my kids were like four and three ish it was a contentious uh, divorce to say the least and not a very amicable custody situation also to say the least i don't know i had i had some help i had some friends and and people around me that did help and my kids were very adaptable, um, but it was tough. It was very, very difficult. And I had to plan my NBA career, my NBA travel life around my custody schedule. And uh, I, I literally went back to, to NBA photos to the head of NBA entertainment, Greg Winnick at the time, had a meeting with him after my you know divorce was settled and my custody agreement was sealed. And I said, look, Here's the deal, <laughs> Greg. Um, I, I want to keep working here. I think I'm a valuable asset. I hope that you guys still want me around. But I can't travel like I have been in the past. And he said, well, what's going to work for you? And, I, and that, at that time, I was a full-time employee for the NBA. So I had, you know, obviously an, an obligation to work a certain amount of days a month. And I said, well, look, if I, you know, I have my kids every other weekend and so if we can plan my travel schedule around that so that I'm home when my kids are there. And then maybe I don't have to work as many home games during my custody time and all that. And he said, Andy, whatever you need, we will do for you. <laughs> I remember him saying it literally like it was yesterday. And I was very thankful 
they really made it work. So when I say I don't know, I don't know in my own mind how I survived it, quite honestly, because it was very pressure-filled, and I wanted to be as good a dad as I could be. But um, like I said, I had very resilient kids, wonderful kids that are now in their mid-20s. We look back at that time and laugh, kind of scratch our heads. (laughs) I, I didn't know how to cook. So, you know, they were eating like the same thing every single time that they were with me. But we had a lot of fun, too, and it was a great bonding experience for us. And then I got remarried. When I got remarried, my kids were 10 and 9, and my daughter, my stepdaughter was 10 at the time. And now, again, they're in their mid-20s, and we have a beautiful 12-year-old, my wife and I. So it's been an incredible journey. Um, have, I've had a lot of support and a lot of people to lean on along the way. A great support system uh, in my personal life and in my family. You know, very fortunate that I could somehow survive all that and still uh, have a career that flourished. When, one of the amazing things about your career that I can't help but think about is it's not just about the people that you've had the opportunity to photograph and get to know, mm-hmm. but that you you have been in proximity to a percentage of humanity that is just very unique, not just in terms of physicality, but just in terms of mindset. Because mm. these men and women that get up to the pinnacle of sports are not just because are there because they're physically endowed in some particular way. There is something in terms of the way they think, mm-hmm. um, how they meet challenges, uh, how they overcome obstacles mm-hmm. that has earned them the place that they're in. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering that, being around that as much as you have, how did that color the way you were as a photographer? Well, there's a lot of pressure to fit in. You know, I succumbed to that pressure early in my career and realized that that wasn't actually the lifestyle and the route that I wanted to lead with my life and that I didn't have to be like all the other guys. I was myself. And I think once I decided that that was the route I wanted to take, it took a lot of pressure off me that look, either people are going to accept me the way I am or they don't, they're not going to hang out with me. You know, and they don't hang out with me. It's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I felt like, you know, and I brought this from childhood and, and my teenage years that I, I needed to be able to fit in. I needed to be able to, uh, you know, just be part of the group. And, and that, you know, as I became got older and I realized that that wasn't important to my job and it was a f- kind of a fake existence that I relaxed and I realized that what I brought to the table was, was an integrity and a trustworthiness that helped me get through many difficult situations that maybe some other photographers might not have been able to adapt to, you know, being um, around professional athletes all the time and, and, respecting their their space but also being able to do my job discreetly without fanfare not making it about me all those things are kind of intangibles that you can't really teach somebody you know you could be the greatest photographer in the world and make the greatest pictures but if people don't want you around (laughs) you're taking pictures of you know blank walls most of the time and I love I truly love what I do and I love being around the guys and I love being part of the scene, but I, I'm happy being part of the furniture, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I don't have to be the center point or I don't have to be the ringleader uh, or anything like that or really be a follower. I can just be me. And that took a long time to actually uh, realize. But once I did, it was, like I said, it was, it was very calming 
and uh, empowering too. One of those people was uh, was Kobe uh, Kobe mm-hmm. Bryant, with whom you you did the book uh, Mamba Mentality, mm-hmm. and I think you probably had one of the more unique uh, relationships with him because you were there from pretty much day one. Mm-hmm. Took his first first you know photograph as a as a Liker. Yeah, uh, yep. for the roster and yep. tell uh, and I th- there's an interesting story about after he had uh, retired, you had approached him about doing doing a book. Yeah, and you came up with the proposal, but uh, he kind of took it elsewhere. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, I had spent 20 years with this amazing individual, and not just athlete but as a person and i got to know him you know as an 18 year old rookie when i met him was there every step of the way and documented every step of the way with him since day one and was you know more i was more than grateful i don't know if there's a, a, a more a better word than grateful but just very humbled and grateful that he allowed me in into his world that he trusted me that he wanted me to be the guy that documented his career you know from the inside although there's so many other photographers who you know obviously documented his career but i was really the guy that he trusted to be on the inside with him you know that will stay with me forever but he uh you know, it was a unique individual. When we got to <laughs> we got to do our book together, it was just so amazing because he he opened up so much, and I saw a side of him that I that I didn't really know about how introspective he was and how he studied my photography from the beginning, uh, even before we met, and was able to build his game through my photography and videos that he had seen and and other people's photography. So I was, you know, it was very amazing process actually of doing that book with him and uh thank god we did the book because the book now is his legacy and you know i couldn't be more grateful than to have that opportunity to have done that with him i hope that answered the question yeah yeah because it was uh, i was listening to the episode that you did with him for your for your podcast legend of the sports where you're Mm -hmm. talking about the book and he made the point that he had looked at your work even before he had met you yeah to analyze you know what People were doing like Michael Jordan mm-hmm. um, when he was you know, when he was boxed in and just and analyzing the photographs in order to discern ways of being able to improve his game and it was just like that level of focus was mm. just uh, amazing and I, I never heard that particular mm. story especially associated with photography but it was just it gave me an even deeper appreciation for uh, the man that he was not mm-hmm. just the athlete. Yeah, I mean that blew me away when. Uh, you know, one example was we were working on the chapter where he was talking about his uh, relationship with Michael Jordan and how he studied Michael's, all of Michael's nuances through my photos and other people's photos and videos and what have you. He wanted to see this particular picture that I had shot that he had remembered. I didn't remember taking it, but he remembered a picture of, of the young Kobe, probably first or second game he played against Michael, where he's Ding up Michael he went through this picture like it was a surgeon, like dissecting something. I mean, he said, look at, look at where my hips are. Look at how my ankles turn. Look at how my elbow is like in the, in his rib cage, blah, blah, blah. He says, you know what's going on in this picture? I said, not really. He said, I'm doing everything wrong. <laughs> this picture. And I said, okay, well forget about this picture. He goes, no, 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 no. This has to go in. This has to be the first picture in the chapter because I want people to learn how I learned from, from looking at this picture, everything I did wrong and how I learned from that so that the next time I was in that situation with him, with Michael, I would have learned from it and 
corrected it and, and did it right. <laughs> yeah. So literally this picture is the lead picture of that chapter and his caption says, everything I'm doing in this picture is wrong. I mean, who does that in their own book? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anybody who would really be that self-deprecating. <laughs> he has a great quote. Uh, said, if you're not obsessed with what you do, uh, we don't speak the same language. Right, right. And how, how did you feel like that applies to you? You know, I didn't know that quote, and, and he didn't speak that quote till years and years later. But when I met him uh, at 18, and I was you know 20 years older than him, there was just something that in this kid – who said that he knew he knew me knew about me and we had never met before and but he knew me through my photos and all the posters he had you know with my pictures my photo credit on it growing up I just knew something about this kid that that just reminded me a little bit of myself at that age at 18 mm -hmm. 19 years old kind of brash uh, a little bit on the smart alecky side driven and yes obsessed so that when we this is really funny, but we we were doing some interviews when the book came out in uh, 2018. And um, one of the interviewers said uh, something like, they said to Kobe, they said, well, you know, you two are so alike. Like, did you know that he was obsessed as, as you are about what he does? And Kobe said, yeah, of course. Why Why else would I have let him be in, in my world all these years? And the guy said, really? He goes, yeah, but you're as crazy obsessed with what you do as what I do. <laughs> So we had two completely different crafts, you know, his was pounding the rock and dunking and mine was, was recording that through my camera, but um, we were just obs as obsessed with what we did. It was always remarkable to me that, you know, I'd come into Staples Center or the forum and he'd be the first guy out there warming up and sometimes he, I would get there before him and we just sort of nodded each other. It was kind of an unsaid thing. But years mm -hmm. and years later, I kind of realized what that was all about, that we recognized in each other this crazy obsession that we had for what we did. I am often surprised from where I hear praise about the show. My wife was at a meeting recently when she was told by a friend that she had friends in London who were big fans of the show. She then followed up by asking exactly what it was I did. Very, very funny. Nevertheless, I'm glad that those people in the know have managed to find us and to appreciate the work that we put in every week to produce this show, which provides a rare place for photographers to have and enjoy conversations that they wouldn't find anywhere else. If you have listened even to just a few episodes, you know how unique and special TCF is. And if you believe that, you can help us to make it happen every week. You can do so by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can contribute $5, $10, $20, or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. These modest amounts add up and provide us the means to keep the show growing and thriving. So if you enjoy the work we're doing, please come on as a Patreon supporter today. Thank you. You've gotten to photograph some amazing games, some historic moments, but I, I hear that the uh, the Dream Team, especially the Dream Team in 92, you have uh, a special affinity for that uh, first Olympic game where uh, all these all-star basketball players got a chance to play and win 
the yeah. gold. So tell me, why is that, of all the events that you've covered, why is that one's one that resonates so, so much with you? Well, you know, I, I've said this before, that if I could have retired after that experience, that would have been a great career to that point, you know, it was mm-hmm. 1992. You know, the NBA trusted me to be the, the guy, uh, the, the lead photographer uh, that was uh, embedded with this team from day one of training camp through the gold medal, which was seven solid weeks with them. I knew it then that this was going to be, this was something very, very special. I mean, people ask me a lot about certain photos of mine, which have attained sort of an iconic thing over the, over the years. And, you know, a lot of that is because when you look back at something, you know, it's, it's just attained this sort of level of iconic memory uh, or legendary memory or whatever. But I knew at the time that this was an incredibly iconic (laughs) assignment because there was never a team assembled like this. And the personalities on that team, the the talent, you know, Chuck Daly being the coach, I mean, all of it was just uh, from top to bottom, you know, stacked and legendary. So, you know, I was was grateful, but I was also um, a little bit intimidated and I was also very nervous, like almost the entire time that I would miss something or that, you know, my work wasn't up to par with the subject matter at hand and all that kind of thing. That was a little bit, uh, I guess, unfounded because, you know, I did produce some good photography from that. And a lot of it got resurfaced during the, uh, the last dance series that ESPN ran about the bulls in the Jordan era, where they spent a lot of time about the dream team and actually brought up some of my photos during that, which was super cool. But it was a great experience, and uh, you know, any, every photographer should have that assignment, that plum assignment that they could always point to as, wow, that was just head and shoulders above any other assignment I ever got. Yeah. And I've had some great assignments, i got to tell you, but that, nothing will ever come close to that. One of the things about photographing sports that you have to be adept at is knowing the sport, mm-hmm. you know, because you have to be sort of a, almost like a savant in terms of anticipation, yeah. In terms of what's about to happen, but I, to a certain degree, I think that you also have to know the players mm-hmm. to a certain degree. So, given that, were there certain players who you really had fun photographing, just because not just because of what they did in terms of their their athleticism, is that what they ended up giving you as a photographer? Yeah, that's a it's a great two part question. I want to answer the first part first because when I really realized I needed to build my portfolio, to be a sports photographer. In my mind, that meant that I had to shoot every sport known to man and women <laughs> because I needed to have this broad portfolio. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I just felt like I needed to shoot everything. And at the time, my dad was living in Colorado Springs, which is the home of the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee. And they had, at the time, to qualify for the Olympics, they had what was called the National Sports Festival, where every Olympic sport was qualified for uh, every summer Olympic sport. So I went out there somehow, I don't even know how I got a credential quite honestly, but I got a credential to shoot it. And I was shooting five, six different sports a day. I mean, rhythmic gymnastics. I was shooting rugby. I mean, interesting at all that I'm shooting um, like yachting, uh, equestrian stuff, bicycling, all this stuff. I mean, what do I know about any of that stuff? <laughs> you know? But I, I knew as a photographer that I had to create some pictures. So maybe 
that I didn't know the sport that well kind of helped me. I don't know. And then fast forward a few years later, my first job was as a team photographer was to be the team photographer for the LA Aztecs soccer team. I'd never seen a soccer game in my life. I grew up in New York. We didn't even know soccer. I didn't, I had no idea that soccer was a sport growing up in Brooklyn. I'm being totally honest with you. So the guy hires me from the LA Aztecs and I guess he assumes that I had seen soccer. I'd never seen a game anywhere on TV. I didn't know how it was played. So I go out there to the field to shoot my first, uh, scrimmage and or what the, whatever they call it and i think and, you know, i was told it was not a field it's a pitch by the way which i didn't know and i'm thinking all right this is a lot like football <laughs> it's kind of like hockey and it's like neither of those sports but anyway i just kind of learned on the fly I had no equipment back then so to answer the second part of your question yes i had to learn how athletes played and most specifically magic johnson comes to mind because if i didn't study Magic's game by trial and error, quite frankly, by shooting so many games with him and missing a lot of things because I mistimed or I just wasn't ready or just not present in the moment. You know, I don't think I could have progressed as a sports photographer and I wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to capture these great moments in his career and Jordan's career and Kobe's career and all these guys that came later. So I, I have a, a, a tremendous amount of gratitude to Magic for teaching me <laughs> how to be patient, how to study, how to come back from frustration and failure, quite honestly, because there's so many games I would look at my film afterwards and just shake my head like I shouldn't even have been there. But I would come back and, and maybe not miss as many shots the next game and learn from that. And shooting with this strobe technique of using these giant flashes in the ceiling, you know, you can only shoot one picture every four seconds. So there's no motor drive situation where I can lean on a motor drive as magic's coming down full speed down the court in front of me, not knowing what he's going to do, you know, in the split second. So it really is a, a lot of, um, I like to call it ESP, got to have a teeny bit of anticipation, be a little bit ahead of the game. But that comes from from preparation, from experience. And uh, quite frankly, a lot from er from error and from failure. From failure, you, you usually comes learning, and from learning comes the rewards of getting a great shot. You just said something interesting about being in in the moment. Mm -hmm. Tell me about developing that particular skill because you know you've talked about understanding strobe, understanding your camera, knowing the game, learning how to be present in the moment. That's a Zen skill. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about how you developed that in, in terms of your, your sports photography. Well, I learned, I learned very early that if I am caught up in the emotion of a crazy pandemonium filled arena uh, and there's a last second shot happening or the NBA finals are about to end and all hell is going to break loose on the court. If I'm caught up in that, then I'm not doing my job. You know, I should just be home watching it on TV like everybody else from their sofa. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I also learned that if I see, if I actually see the photo happen through the viewfinder, I miss the picture because uh, the shutter, as you know, the shutter mm -hmm. should be closing in the moment that the picture is taken. So I shouldn't be seeing it. It means I, I missed it. And we don't get that opportunity back in, in our world in sports photography. You can't say, oh, yeah, well, hold on, you know, like a model. Like, can you do that pose again or fix that lighting or <laughs> whatever? So that doesn't happen. And then that sort of gelled when I got to be around Phil Jackson a lot. And I got to see how Phil was able to center himself, even in the most uh, 
you know, jam-packed, pressure-filled moments. I, I would see Phil on the bench just sort of, you know, tying his shoelaces or you know, looking at his fingernails. And, you know, it's like a one-point game going on or whatever. And then watching Kobe and how he prepared for games and his mental preparation, how he med- meditated, I, I, I was just blown away by this guy who could literally fall asleep on a massage table an hour and a half before game time. And his heartbeat was, you know, just – just barely going, you know, and I, my heart would be pumping like crazy because I knew this game was going to start. Seeing him, he, he would literally stand there during the national anthem with his eyes closed, meditating during the anthem of an NBA finals game, you know, and all the other guys are fidgeting around or, or they might be looking somewhere else. No, but Kobe was totally centered in himself, taking himself out of the moment, very zen-like. So very inspiring. That sort of permeated not just you know, my work life, but kind of moved into my crazy personal life at the time, which really needed to be present, you know, especially <laughs> with young children. You know, I wasn't always great at it, but at least it was a skill that, that I could take from my work life into my personal life. You, know, you, you talked about some other photographic greats like Neil Leifer and Peter Reed Miller. Mm-hmm. You know, it must have been great to have, see them as a peer, people who you had, whose work you admired for, for God knows how long. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm curious, is there a picture that one of your photographic heroes took who you got to know that you think, God, I'd wish I had made that photograph. Oh, and so what it is. How much time do we have? It's <laughs> like a million of them. But I, I've learned from that. And I, I, I admire these guys so much. I mean, you know, John Zimmerman, who people might not know was really the godfather of, of sort of remote photography, putting remotes into crazy places in arenas to, for basketball and hockey. You know, he's the first guy to put a camera behind the backboard. He's the first guy to probably put a camera in the catwalk, that kind of thing. And then Neil Leifer and, and, and Walter and what they were able to do. You know, when I teach photography, I always bring their work, you know, the masters. These guys are, are that's the Mount Rushmore of sports photography we're talking about here. You know, Neil Leifer's uh, Ali over Liston picture, literally the most and voted the most iconic sports photo ever taken. And knowing the story behind it and having met Neil and having him take me through how that picture happened. And Walter, you know, Walter Yost was just recently on my podcast and we talked about so many of his iconic moments. But the fact that his preparation and his knowledge, everything you talked about earlier, and learning the game and uh, being in the moment really helped him get these unbelievable, iconic photographs that will live forever. You know, the Dwight Clark catch, for example, mm-hmm. Joe Namath. I mean, he, you know, you can name a million of them. So, you know, I'm hoping that this generation, this new generation of sports photographers maybe looks at my work, Nat Butler's work, John McDonough's work, you know, my, my colleagues that I've been sitting next to for years, and they're able to say, wow, maybe one day I'll be able to take a picture like that. <laughs> you know? And maybe somebody like yourself will ask them that. And that, that means a lot to me. You know, if I can inspire people with my work, I was, I was so inspired by those greats and continue to be. I still break out Neil's book or, or Walter's book and just am dumbfounded as to the stuff that I can. And let's keep in mind, they were shooting in crappy lighting with film cameras, with film that wasn't particularly suited for that kind of work. Right. You know, that's why they, they perfected the strobe technique for indoor arenas, which was so revolutionary at the time. And they were just trailbla- trailblazers and 
on top of that, they were incredible guys. They still are. I mean, Neil Leifert, God bless him. The guy, I don't even want to say how old he is, but he still is working and is pumped up as he always has been his whole career. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your, your podcast. How did you come to decide to put down the camera for a little bit and pick mm. up a microphone? Well, you know, I had met so many great people along the way, and it was always been so fascinated by people's stories, what made them who they are, what made them great. You know, guys like Magic, I know his story. I know Shaq's story. I, I, I know about Phil Jackson, Dr. Buss. I mean, people like that who I was just, I've just always been fascinated with what made somebody who they are. What were, what were those moments? What were, who were their mentors? What was that epiphany in their life? Uh, that pivotal moment in time when they, you know, the switch went on just like me, you know, you talked mm-hmm. about earlier when that light went on when I was uh, you know, a young photographer in the dark room. And quite frankly, I, I knew that my career as, as a sports photographer, you know, on site, you know, is not going to be forever, you know, physically, it, it takes a toll. Um, I didn't want to be traveling as much as I was. So I still love what I do, of course. So I was looking for a way to kind of meld both of those. And at the same time, my love for the legends of the game, of, of every game, you know, every game I've ever been around, but especially basketball and wanting to help those guys uh, kind of redirect the spotlight back on them a little bit. And maybe, you know, through, my legends of sport platform, you know, make them uh, marketable again, or, 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 you know, introduce them to a whole new generation of, of people who grew up hearing their names, you know, through their parents, through their dad, or maybe they were, you know, dragged to a game as like a five-year-old, but they didn't, or maybe they never saw people play. This whole generation had never seen Michael Jordan play, right? They watching the last dance, you know, thinking they're looking at Babe Ruth or something, but you know, this is a real person who accomplished so much. So I, I want to be able to uh, tell those stories. And I really, truly love talking to people, and especially in my business. So uh, we set out, myself and two partners, we set out to launch this platform three years ago through the podcast. And to date, I've done about 88, 89 podcasts um, over two and a half, almost three seasons. And this season, we partnered with the LA Times to co-produce and for them to distribute the podcast along with all your favorite podcast uh, networks, you know, platforms like Spotify and Apple. So it's been a great, um, a great connection, a great marriage with the LA Times. They're wonderful people to work with. They have a great podcast platform, uh, which people in LA probably are familiar with, but maybe not as much outside of LA. So we're trying to help them, you know, with that as well. And we came up with, the series of 16 episodes, one, one a week during this whole restart of the NBA and WNBA during the bubble situations in Florida. So each week has a theme and we'll go through the end of the NBA finals, which is scheduled to be about mid-October. So every week we do a theme. It's been a lot of fun, you know, kind of talking to people who are in the bubble. You know, I'm going to be going down there myself in a few weeks, but also talking to legendary coaches, NBA personnel, you know, of course, former players, broadcasters, people who can really put a legend's spin and a legend's perspective on what's going on right now. So it's very relevant, but it's also, to me, it's super interesting because you're hearing from people from, from the past who really can lend a lot of perspective to what's going on. You know, you're interviewing people who you've known for a while. 
Mm -hmm. Did you have an interview where you sat down with a person where you you were surprised and discovered something that you hadn't known, even though you had known them for so long? I find I, I literally find that out every single time. I mean, I, and I have a great producer and researcher, Veronica, who I don't know where she comes up with a lot of this stuff. Honestly, <laughs> she reads so much and she takes such deep dives and it doesn't even matter who the guest is. There's always a nugget. There's always something, you know, like, for example, this week I have Mike D'Antoni on, who is, the, you know, the coach of the Houston Rockets. I know Mike, I've known him for years and he and his wife and at dinners with him socially have traveled with them. And, you know, I didn't know like why he ended up in Italy playing in Italy. I'd never actually asked him that. And he's a legend in Italy. I didn't know that he and Laurel, his wife met in Italy, that she was a model. I mean, all these things, I mean, uh. you know, even on the professional side, there's so many things that I find out, you know, especially like Kobe told me so many things about who he would reach out to, just to pick their brain about greatness. And, you know, we've heard some stories, but there were things that I had heard that I had never heard. And especially from him, Peter Guber, the same way. I mean, you know, Peter Guber, owner of the Warriors, owner of the Dodgers, you know, a a, a mogul in the entertainment world. But he was like this Red Sox fan growing up who couldn't even afford to go to Fenway Park. He had to stand out in Yawkey Way and hope to catch a home run over the Green Monster out in the street. You know, I didn't know that. Who knew that? You know, so <laughs> this is all fascinating things. And th- all of these things kind of made the person who they are. And that's why I want to talk to them because I'm just interested as a fan, as a, as a friend, yeah. but also I want to bring that to the public as well. And it's, it's inspiring and it's, it's exciting for me. My last question, which I ask each guest, is I ask them to recommend another photographer, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Wow. Oh, boy, that's a, that's a really tough question. Um, so many come to mind right off the top of my head. I mean, I'm a big admirer of Danny Clinch. Mm-hmm. Danny is not a sports photographer. Danny is a music photographer. But his portraiture... And his way of, of working with, with musicians uh, on the same sort of iconic level as athletes that I work with, I, I just admire him so much. I don't know Danny personally. We've corresponded a couple of times. My wife bought me a couple of original prints of his. Uh, I just got his book for Father's Day and sent him one of my books, you know, and one day we will meet. I mean, he, he's had the dream job for years being uh, – my idol, Bruce Springsteen's personal photographer. So a little jealous about that. I must say. <laughs> but not, he's, not, okay. he's just, uh, he's just amazing. And I encourage everybody to look him up. Danny clinch. Just yeah. work. I interviewed him last year. He's a, he's a gem. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad yeah. you got to meet him because yeah. I, I look forward to the time when I can sit down with him over a beer or two at Asbury Park uh, on the boardwalk and just, you know, shoot the breeze about photography and life because, uh, you know, he's, he's quite an interesting guy. Yeah. Well, Andy, so are you. And thank well, you so much for making time for us today. I really enjoyed it. Well, I enjoyed it, too. Thanks so much. And uh, anytime I'll come back, uh, maybe after the bubble situation, and we can rehash how that went. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe life is getting back to normal. and We could actually uh, see each other. Thanks to Andy for joining us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting adbappy.com 
And don't forget to listen and subscribe to his podcast, Legends of Sport. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or reoccurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Bijan Eric for his recent contribution. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.